Is it a sin? Is it a crime? Loving you dear like I do. If it's a crime, then I'm guilty. Guilty of loving you. Hello, and welcome to Criminal Broads, a podcast about wild women on the wrong side of the law. I'm your host, Tori Telfer, and I have some semi-breaking news. Have you listened to last week's episode? The one about Pam Hupp, everyone's least favorite alleged serial killer? Well, guys, last week, I think it was the day before the episode actually came out, Pam Hupp was charged with first-degree murder in the 2011 stabbing of her quote-unquote bestie, Betsy. So this is huge, guys. Pam Hupp is already in prison for life for killing a man she didn't even know. Just an absolutely nonsensical murder. Not that any murder is really sensical. But anyway, now she's going to possibly get another conviction on her record. So Pam, worst of luck to you. I've also had multiple readers (laughs) message me telling me that Pam is an ultimate Karen. And yeah, guys, she is. I sort of think of her as the Karen of serial killers. So anyway, if you don't know what I'm talking about, go back and listen to last week's episode and rage with us. Rage with us at Pam Hop. Okay, you know what? Normally I record these episodes several days before they come out because they have to go to my editor, etc., etc. I am recording this the night before it comes out. So I'm just telling you that. So if any podcasters are listening to this, you get a cold shiver running down your spine. Yes, I'm living on the edge right now. It's not pretty, but I've been traveling and I don't really travel with my recording equipment. So I was like, I'm going to just have to record this episode the night I get back. So anyway, if I sound deranged with exhaustion, that's why, but not trying to make you feel sorry for me. Everything's fine. Okay, today's episode is a very sad one. I'm just putting that right here. It is a very sad one. It involves a child that something really bad happens to. So if you're in a fragile state of mind, my listeners, turn this off. Go listen to another podcast, a lighter podcast. Go listen to this podcast called The Lazy Genius, which is this get-your-life-organized podcast that I've been obsessed with lately. Skip this episode. Also, there's going to be some talk about weird eating habits. It's just we're going to get into like some details about eating. So if that's not something you feel like you can hear, again, check out The Lazy Genius. Not sponsored by The Lazy Genius. Just love her. She doesn't know who I am. The other thing I wanted to tell you is that I really leaned heavily for this article on this amazing episode in Texas Monthly by Pamela Koloff. Any cool Texas crime article you've read, she probably wrote. It's called Hannah and Andrew, and I will link to it in the show notes. All right. I think that's all I needed to tell you. Let's get into the story. We're going back to the year 2006 in Corpus Christi, Texas. Let's go. Hannah Overton loved kids. She wanted lots of them, six of them. Maybe it was because she'd grown up with only one brother, seven years younger than her. Or maybe it was because she'd grown up in a broken home. Her family, the Sands family, 
was a white family living in Corpus Christi, Texas, and her father, Benny, was an evangelical preacher who led a double life. One day, in 1984, when Hannah was only seven, Benny Sands raped a 16-year-old girl named Vicky, beat her to death, and dumped her naked body on a lonely beach. He was sentenced to 23 years, and Hannah and her family left town. So her father was a murderer, and her grandfather? Believe it or not, her biological maternal grandfather was none other than Marshall Applewhite, co-founder of the infamous Heaven's Gate cult. According to someone in an internet comment section who claims she is Hannah's aunt, Marshall Applewhite abandoned his family when Hannah's mother was five years old. So Hannah never knew her grandfather. And surely, a girl isn't responsible for the sins of the generations before her, right? Still, these two details of Hannah's life, the connection to a cult leader and the father who was a murderer, these two details would be used in many a comment section and blog post to argue that Hannah was evil to her core and deserved to die. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. After her father was imprisoned and his church dissolved, you might think Hannah would never darken the door of a religious institution again. But Hannah stayed in the church. She clung to God like a life raft. When no one else was there for her family, the church was. Her family moved to a little city in East Texas called Lindale, where a missionary organization gave them a free apartment— and Hannah babysat the missionaries' children as they came through the U.S. on furlough. Her love of children only grew from there. On Christmas and Easter, she would drive nine hours south, crossing the border into Mexico, and she would spend the day at an orphanage in the border city of Reynosa. The kids there were often sick, but Hannah didn't care. She'd hold them and play with them, and sometimes she'd get their head lice, but she loved them. She loved them so much that a few years later, Hannah took her new husband to that same orphanage on their honeymoon. This new husband was a young man named Larry Overton. Larry and Hannah had known each other since they were children. And Larry loved kids too, but he wasn't entirely sure about Hannah's let's have six of them idea. But Hannah was sure. She'd always been sure. They had Isaac, then Isabel, then Allie, then Sebastian, They were living back in Corpus Christi by then, members of a non-denominational church, and Hannah was homeschooling her kids. Everyone who knew her remembered her incredible patience with them. She seemed to have infinite reserves of it for her children. There was nothing that she couldn't handle calmly, it seemed. And so when Hannah and Larry started talking about adopting a fifth child, most of the people around them supported the idea. Sure, the Overtons really didn't make that much money, and Hannah specifically wanted to adopt an older child or a child with disabilities, some child that most other couples would overlook. But Hannah could handle it. Everyone was sure of that. The Overtons put in an application to adopt a little boy named Andrew, and in the spring of 2006, they got word that their application was approved. And then they got a second piece of good news. Hannah was pregnant again. Her dream was coming true. She was going to have her six kids, after all. She just didn't know that less than six months later, that dream would become a nightmare.
Let's take a quick break to hear from this episode's sponsor. And also, guys, we've had a lot of sensual sponsors lately. It's probably something to do like the moon's probably in Virgo or something. I don't know. My astrology friends can tell us what's happening. Anyway, today's sponsor is the lovely Dame. Now, our relationships should add value to our lives. Do we agree? Do we see a lot of relationships on this show that add the literal opposite of value to people's lives? Yes. Do we want those for ourselves? No. Thoughtfully designed toys for the bedroom can deepen your connection with your partner and leave everybody feeling satisfied. Dame Products is a woman-owned company making the next generation of toys for intimacy. It's founded by a sex educator and an engineering whiz, and Dame develops its products with the help of, believe it or not, real humans like you. Their mission is to make adding toys to the bedroom less intimidating and more accessible to create better intimate experiences for all. If you're unsure of what you're looking for, you can go to Dame's website and take their product quiz and you'll get all these great recommendations so you don't have to feel like, I'm so overwhelmed, like what am I even buying? Just focus on getting those good, healthy relationships in your life. And if you're in a relationship that makes you vaguely think like, huh, this is reminding me of criminal broads, I don't know why. I'm going to say right now, don't do it. Don't do it. What you should do is go to dameproducts.com slash criminalbroads for 50% off site-wide. Again, go to dameproducts.com slash criminalbroads today for 15% off site-wide. Little Andrew Bird was born into a completely different world than Hannah's other children. His mom was 16, and she used almost every drug under the sun, from crack cocaine to LSD to meth. His grandma used meth, too. Andrew's childhood was marked by neglect and abuse and danger. Not long after his first birthday, his mom dragged him into the hospital with a broken arm. By the time he was two and a half, he was in foster care. At three, his biological parents' rights were stripped from them. Now Andrew was going to stay in foster care forever, unless someone adopted him. As luck would have it, Andrew's foster mother attended the same church as the Overtons. So every Sunday, Andrew would come to church with his foster mom, and he would sit in Sunday school class with some of the little Overton children. The little kids always shared their prayer requests, and every week, Andrew's request was the same. He wanted to be adopted. Andrew was an adorable kid. He had bright blonde hair and chubby cheeks and a toothy grin. He loved Spider-Man. But he was troubled. Of course he was troubled. He'd known nothing but abuse and abandonment for his entire short life. So he would throw terrible fits in Sunday school. He would eat food out of the trash can. When Hannah and Larry learned that there was a little boy, almost four, in their daughter's Sunday school class who desperately wanted to be adopted, this seemed like a sign from God, but some of their fellow churchgoers told them not to do it. 
Andrew was too troubled, they said. The Overtons already had four children with a fifth on the way. It wasn't going to be fair to their other kids to take on this extra burden. They wouldn't be able to handle Andrew. But Hannah and Larry were sure that they could handle Andrew. Wasn't this what Hannah had been working towards her entire life? She had extensive experience with children. She was a competent mother of four already. And as far as special needs went, well, she'd actually worked as a private nurse for disabled children before she had kids of her own. The way she helped her little clients sometimes seemed nothing short of magic, according to their parents. Plus, there was her legendary patience. Plus, Child Protective Services assured them that Andrew was perfectly healthy. A little delayed in his speech, maybe, but otherwise he was just fine. So the Overtons moved ahead with the adoption. On Mother's Day of 2006, Andrew arrived at their home for a six-month trial period. In certain ways, Andrew thrived there. It wasn't long before he was calling Hannah and Larry mommy and daddy. He would hold hands with his new siblings. He would join them in group hugs. He was learning to conquer simple things that had seemed impossible to him before, like putting on his shoes. He was talking more. He was following Larry around like a little shadow. But there were issues. There were struggles, terrors, tantrums. The Overtons knew they were adopting a child with serious trauma in his past, and they knew that trauma affected behavior. And so these issues didn't surprise them. They were in it for the long haul. But they weren't quite prepared for Andrew's issues with food. Andrew was obsessed with food. All he wanted to do was eat. He would ask for seconds, thirds, fourths. He would get down on the floor to look for crumbs, and if he couldn't find crumbs, he'd eat whatever he could find. Pieces of gum off the sidewalk, pieces of the carpet, flakes of paint, chunks of his mattress, old cigarette butts. Once, Larry decided to give Andrew as much food as he wanted, thinking that Andrew might realize that it didn't actually feel good to just eat and eat and eat. So Larry cooked up a huge plate of sausage and an entire carton of eggs. Andrew ate it all, threw up, and then asked for more. Hannah would later testify, we had to put the cat food in the garage because he would eat it. He would eat toothpaste. We couldn't keep soap in the bathroom because he'd take bites out of it. He broke a glow stick and tried to drink it. It's not that this blindsided the Overtons exactly. Foster children often have strange relationships with food. It's not unusual for them to hoard food, to overeat, or to develop an eating disorder. Food can be a way of exerting control in a world where foster children feel like they have no control. Imagine how much you'd obsess over food if you'd grown up starving. It was like there was something in Andrew telling him to eat, and eat as much as possible because there might not be any food in the fridge tomorrow. Hannah was sure that what Andrew needed was love and security and patience and connection, and that with time, his obsession with food would fade. But so far, it wasn't fading. In fact, it was getting worse. In September, about three months into the adoption trial period, the entire Overton family was in a car accident. They had all gone to Hannah's OBGYN appointment to find out that she was pregnant with a little girl, and on their way back, Larry ran a stop sign and hit another car. Everyone whipped forward. Hannah's face slammed into the dashboard. She sat right back up and twisted around to check on her five children in the back seat. And she didn't know it, but her face was covered in blood. 
This terrified Andrew. But no one noticed how frightened he was at the time because, well, everyone was frightened. Hannah was taken to the hospital and given a neck brace while Andrew ate dinner and asked for more and more and more, asking, is my mom okay? Is my mom okay? Is my mom okay? Hannah had to stay in bed for the next couple of weeks, and so other people came by to watch the kids, and this freaked Andrew out even more. What was happening? Why was his mom sick? He would get mosquito bites, and then he would pick at the bites so badly that he eventually got a staph infection. He would hit his head against the floor. He cried for hours and hours. Hannah and Larry put a baby monitor in his room to see if he was sneaking out for food in the night, and he was. They could see him on the screen picking paint off the walls and eating the flakes. Hannah told all this to the adoption supervisor, who stopped by to visit on September 25th, and the supervisor said, maybe he has pica. Pica is an eating disorder where people eat things that aren't food and don't have any nutritional value, like dirt or hair or paint chips or salt. Hannah heard this and made a mental note to take Andrew to a specialist if things got worse. A few days later, on a Sunday afternoon, Hannah told Andrew that he needed to wait a few minutes until lunch was ready. Andrew freaked out. He pooped on the floor and smeared it all over his bedroom, all over his Spider-Man sheets. Hannah was six months pregnant and still in a neck brace, and she couldn't manage Andrew and clean up the mess herself, so Larry cleaned the room when he got home. He dragged the mattress to the backyard and hosed it down. He put the filthy Spider-Man sheets in the trash, but Andrew kept pulling them out. And so finally, Larry lost his temper and burned the sheets in the fire pit. He wasn't proud of that moment, but he didn't think it was a huge deal because they had another set of Spider-Man sheets, just like the originals. So after the cleanup, Andrew's sleeping arrangements got a little weird. He had to spend that night in a sleeping bag on his bed frame since his mattress was still drying in the backyard. The remains of the Spider-Man sheets were still visible in the fire pit. Larry thought all of this was just cleanup. But it would become terribly significant in a day or two. The next day was October 2nd. Hannah let Andrew and two-year-old Sebastian watch cartoons in bed with her. At one point, she dozed off. Remember, she was pregnant and still recovering from the car accident. When she woke up, Andrew wasn't there. She found him in the kitchen, on a stool in the pantry. He was eating something. Hannah didn't really register what it was, but she remembered later that Andrew was near the baking ingredients. It was not unusual to find him sneaking food, and so she didn't think much of it at the time. But she put him in timeout for three minutes and said they'd have lunch soon. He freaked out and started smearing his feces everywhere, and when Hannah got it cleaned up, he did it again. So finally she relented and gave him some food, some leftover soup flavored with Zatarain's Creole seasoning, which was a spicy seasoning that Andrew really liked. Larry came home then and helped clean up. After that, the family went to Hannah's chiropractor appointment and then stopped by McDonald's to get some food. But Hannah explained to Andrew that he couldn't eat at the McDonald's because he'd already had lunch. They were always trying to explain food to him this way. You've had some, so you need to wait for more. Or you can't have any now, but you'll have some soon. Of course, Andrew hated this, hated that he couldn't have McDonald's. And so when they got home, Hannah fed him more of the leftover soup. 
When he finished it and asked for another serving, she tried to pacify him by sprinkling some of that Zatarain's Creole seasoning into a sippy cup of water. He really liked the flavor, and so she thought this might tide him over. He drank the water and then launched into a tantrum because he wanted more soup. But after 20 minutes, he dropped to the floor. He said, Mommy, I'm cold. And he threw up. At first, Hannah and Larry thought that Andrew had some sort of stomach bug. He had the chills, he was lethargic, he was vomiting. They'd seen these symptoms before in their other kids when they had the flu. Hannah also had some old medical training herself. She'd actually studied to be an EMT years ago, and she still had her books around. So she felt confident that she could handle this. Andrew began to shake, so she put him on a heating pad. He had trouble breathing, so she gave him her other son's asthma nebulizer. But she had no idea what was really going on inside Andrew's body. He was getting less and less responsive, and finally Hannah was forced to admit that this wasn't the flu, this wasn't like all the other times, this wasn't something she could treat at home. But she and Larry didn't call 911. They thought it would be faster to put Andrew in the car and take him to a nearby urgent care clinic. So that's what they did. In the car, Andrew stopped breathing. Hannah started giving him CPR until they arrived at the clinic and the paramedics took over. The clinic transferred Andrew to a hospital, and that hospital transferred him to another hospital. He was declining fast. Doctors discovered that Andrew had twice the normal level of sodium in his blood and some bleeding in his brain. Clearly, this wasn't a normal situation. This was a kid who was near death. Someone notified the police. And so, Detective Michael Hess pulled Hannah aside to interview her while Andrew was being treated in a hospital room. Hannah talked to the detective without a lawyer. The idea of getting a lawyer probably didn't cross her mind. She was very distracted because she just wanted to get back to Andrew. And so when she answered the detective's questions, she left out huge chunks of information, like the fact that she'd found Andrew in the pantry earlier eating some unknown substance. When Detective Hess asked her to explain the high sodium levels in Andrew's blood, Hannah didn't have any explanation at all. Still, despite the strain she was under, and despite her obvious distraction, she remained calm. Detective Hess found this suspicious. In his police report, he wrote, It should be noted that during the entire conversation, Hannah Overton showed almost no emotion. And then everything crumbled for the Overtons. The police searched their home and found ominous signs that seemed to point to child abuse. Andrew was forced to sleep in a sleeping bag on a hard bed frame. He didn't even have a mattress. And his bed sheets had been burned, clearly some sort of bizarre punishment. There was a baby monitor in his room surveilling him. What house of horrors was this? Child Protective Services declared that Hannah and Larry were no longer allowed to visit Andrew in the hospital. And little Andrew passed away on the night of October 3rd, with no family beside him. His adoption trial period hadn't ended yet. His prayer, that someone would finally adopt him, was never fully answered. Larry and Hannah had no time to mourn the little boy that they had wanted to adopt, 
they were arrested during a traffic stop. Police swarmed around them, guns drawn, forced them onto the ground and put them in handcuffs. It was like they were arresting John Wayne Gacy. Larry was charged with injury to a child for failing to get Andrew timely medical attention. Hannah was charged with capital murder. Hannah's trial began in August of 2007. By then, many people had made up their minds about her. The media had done its job well. She was a monstrous mother, a diabolical baby killer, the worst kind of criminal imaginable. A degenerate, child-killing slut, one blogger called her. Naturally, people said, she deserved to die. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out why people were so upset. A child was dead. A child was dead, suddenly and horribly, and someone needed to pay. The cause of death? Well, the medical examiner declared that Andrew had died of acute sodium toxicity, or salt poisoning. And what does the word poisoning imply? A poisoner. It had to be Hannah, people thought. Little kids didn't just feed themselves salt. And Hannah had already admitted to feeding Andrew multiple servings of soup and water with Zatarain's Creole seasoning in them, which was a salty spice blend. The facts seemed clear. Hannah had forced her adopted son to sleep on a wooden frame. She spied on him with a baby monitor. She couldn't deal with his tantrums and his issues. She didn't love him as much as she loved her biological kids. And so she force-fed him Zatarain's Creole seasoning until the sodium content in his blood was so high that his body began shutting down. Before the case started, there were all sorts of rumors floating around that damaged Hannah's image even further. The medical examiner had mentioned that Andrew sustained blunt force head trauma and said that the trauma contributed to his death. Now, the so-called head trauma, which was the bleeding under his scalp, could have been a symptom of the salt poisoning, actually, and the medical examiner admitted this. And the idea that Andrew had a head injury was actually ruled inadmissible at Hannah's trial. But the rumor persisted that Hannah had bashed Andrew over the head, This was only reconfirmed by a CPS worker who swore in an affidavit that Hannah admitted that she'd forced Andrew to drink two cups of chili with water and then, quote, picked him up and beat the shit out of him. This affidavit was also never used at trial because the police denied that Hannah had ever said those things. But again, the image stuck with people. Not only had Hannah Overton poisoned Andrew with salt, but she'd bashed him over the head and admitted it degenerate, child-killing slut indeed. In a case like this, where emotions are at their highest and where the question at stake is so intimate, who can say what goes on between a mother and child at home? In a case like this, the tiniest detail can seem benign or suspicious, like the mattress. It was outside because Larry had just hosed it down. It was going back on Andrew's bed as soon as it was dried. Or was it a sign that Andrew wasn't given a real bed like the biological Overton children were? Another detail that got really warped was that one of Hannah's kids said that she gave them, quote, spicy stuff when they lied. 
Now, this was a punishment recommended by one of Hannah's pastors. It was, you put a single red pepper flake on your kid's tongue when they tell a lie. Was this a well-meaning, if old-fashioned, punishment, like washing your kid's mouths out with soap? Or was this a sign that Hannah was a terrible abuser? In January of 2007, before her trial started, Hannah gave birth to a baby girl, Emma. CPS took the newborn away a few days later. Hannah went to family court to try and get her daughter back. After all, she was nursing her. And the judge agreed that Hannah could nurse her newborn, but could never be alone with her. In those days, Hannah struggled just to get out of bed. She could hardly bring herself to eat. A few months ago, her long-dreamed-of family of six children was finally materializing. And now, one of those children was dead. And the four other ones were in the custody of their grandmother. And she couldn't even be alone with her newborn baby. And so, her trial began. The argument from the prosecution was that Hannah was six months pregnant and had this troubled little boy in her house and decided that she just couldn't take it anymore. So she had somehow forced Andrew to drink enough salty water with six teaspoons of salt or 23 teaspoons of Zatarain's Creole seasoning to kill him. They argued that Andrew was a normal child with no behavioral problems until Hannah entered the picture, and they brought plenty of witnesses to the stand who were happy to confirm this. They also ignored any evidence that Andrew may have had something like pica and might have consumed all that salt himself. Years later, Hannah's prosecutor would admit that she had been an alcoholic during the trial, an alcoholic who took so many prescription diet pills that it affected her memory. When someone showed her samples of her handwriting from the case, she didn't recognize them. Perhaps most importantly, the prosecution ignored the fact that Andrew's adoption process was still in the six-month trial period. If Hannah couldn't deal with Andrew, if she had hated having him around so much, if she didn't want him as a son, why didn't she just stop the adoption process and move on with her life? Why resort to something as bizarre and rare as salt poisoning? The prosecution never answered those questions, but they didn't need to, because they had so many witnesses willing to testify that Hannah was a psychopath. Two nurses took the stand and said that Hannah had been creepily smiling as she performed CPR on Andrew, even though neither of these nurses had said anything about the smiling to police a year earlier when Andrew was hospitalized. A paramedic testified that Andrew had cigarette burns on his arms, which was an appalling revelation, never mind that an expert for the defense said that the sores were mosquito bites that had been badly scratched. And a physician who treated Andrew said that his body was covered in bruises, which was true. But the bruises had appeared at the hospital, and they may have been a result of the aggressive attempts by paramedics and nurses and doctors to save his life. Now, the question of whether or not Hannah had murdered Andrew wasn't the only question at this trial. The jury was supposed to consider whether or not Hannah had failed to provide medical care to Andrew. Had she waited too long to take him to the clinic? Why hadn't she called 911? In an attempt to answer that, Hannah took the stand and said that she hadn't realized the seriousness of the situation until it was too late. She just thought Andrew had the flu. 
As I said earlier, Hannah was being charged with capital murder, which meant either death or life without parole. The prosecutors weren't going to pursue the death penalty. And after hearing all the evidence, the judge declared that he was willing to give Hannah a lesser charge, manslaughter or criminally negligent homicide. But Hannah said no. She felt that accepting a lesser charge would mean admitting guilt, and she knew that she was innocent. So she said no, and the jury deliberated, and when they declared her guilty, Hannah looked, as one journalist said, horror-struck. It was a strange verdict. The jury had technically found her guilty of capital murder by omission, which is a very rare standard for declaring someone a murderer. See, the jury had been told that they could either find her guilty of deliberately poisoning Andrew or guilty of failing to save his life by not getting him to the hospital on time. None of them thought that she had deliberately poisoned Andrew. So they found her guilty of not getting him to the hospital on time. In other words, they basically found her guilty of knowing that he would die unless she took him to the hospital and deliberately delaying that. But that wasn't really actually what the jurors thought had happened. The whole thing was very confusing. One juror called the charge ambiguous and wrote later, It seemed to me, based upon the wording of the charge, that we had no choice but to find her guilty of capital murder. I do not believe that Mrs. Overton knew that her actions, or lack thereof, would kill Andrew Bird. Although I believe that Mrs. Overton was remiss in seeking timely medical care for Andrew Bird, I do not believe that she intended or knew that this would result in his death. I do not feel that justice has been served. Never mind that, though, because Hannah was sentenced to life without parole and separated from her living children for good. Larry's sentence was totally different. He pled no contest to criminally negligent homicide. He didn't want to fight the charge and risk being taken away from his children, too. He was given a $5,000 fine and five years of probation. Since he wasn't locked up, it meant that once a month he could put all the children in his van and drive the 632-mile round-trip drive to see Hannah in prison. There, the kids had to talk to their mother behind glass. They weren't allowed to touch her, and they had to fight for the phone, which would allow them to hear her voice. They'd cry because they couldn't kiss her, and they didn't understand why. And then they had to make the long drive home. But Hannah wasn't going to give up on her mothering that easy. She planned her kids' birthday parties from prison, picking out the games, and even making whatever decorations she could from prison supplies. She stood at the window of her cell and watched baby Emma take some of her first steps in the prison parking lot below. She wrote endless cards and letters to her babies, and she would always sign them, Infinity Isn't Enough, an attempt to express her impossible-to-express love for them. And she fought that guilty verdict. She found a wickedly smart appellate lawyer— Appellate lawyers are the lawyers who get involved after a case is won or lost. 
And this lawyer absolutely scoured the prosecution's case file, hoping to find something that the judge hadn't seen before. And what do you know? The lawyer found it. The smoking gun of sorts was a document that talked about the contents of Andrew's stomach. Andrew didn't have a lot of salt in his stomach when he was taken to the urgent care clinic, but he did have a lot of water in his stomach. Hannah's lawyer took this information to an expert on salt poisoning. The expert thought these details were very significant. He wrote, If someone was trying to murder Andrew, they would have restrained him and prevented him from drinking water. The very dilute gastric sodium contents suggest that he had unrestricted access to water. There is not a single piece of evidence which suggests that Hannah Overton's salt poisoned Andrew. It is unlikely that any intervention would have made a significant difference as Andrew had already taken the most critical step to save himself by consuming copious amounts of fluid. With this new information, Hannah's lawyer filed a writ of habeas corpus, an attempt to bring Hannah back before the court to determine if her imprisonment was lawful. In this writ, the lawyer claimed that the prosecutors hadn't disclosed this critical information about Andrew's stomach contents to Hannah's old defense team. The fact that Andrew didn't have a lot of salt in his stomach, but did have it in his bloodstream, meant that Andrew had to have consumed the salt earlier in the day, probably when Hannah found him in the pantry. The prosecutor's argument was that Hannah had forced Andrew to drink tons of salty water right before he got sick, but the evidence simply didn't support that. This writ of habeas corpus also argued that Hannah hadn't been given an adequate defense— since her lawyers hadn't called this salt poisoning expert to the stand. The judge dismissed this petition the day it was filed. Hannah's lawyer appealed. The appeals court told the judge he needed to hold a new hearing. After the hearing, Hannah's appeal was denied again. By now, it was 2014, and Hannah had been in prison for seven long years. Finally, that September, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals reversed the judge's order and ordered that Hannah get a new trial, saying that yes, her lawyers hadn't provided her with an adequate legal defense. Hannah was released on bond, and a few months later, in the spring of 2015, news came that would change her life. The charges against her were being dismissed. The district attorney had reviewed the previous trial, re-interviewed witnesses, consulted with medical experts, and concluded that Hannah was innocent. She wouldn't even have to have a new trial. She was free. Today, Hannah is back with her babies. Her oldest son is married. In March of 2018, she was awarded $573,333 from the state of Texas for her wrongful conviction. She'll also receive a lump sum from the state every year. A few months after that, she gave birth to a new baby, Gabriella Aliana. Two years ago, Hannah and another one of her daughters got matching tattoos. 
delicate cherry blossom branches paired with the line that Hannah used to write on her cards from prison. Infinity isn't enough. Looking back on her brief time with Andrew, the son she never got to officially adopt, Hannah says she'd do it all again. She told journalist Pamela Koloff, It's not even a consideration. I wouldn't give up that time we had with him and that he had with us. These days, Hannah is really intense about Christmas. Her kids joke that she has a tradition for every minute of the day. She lost seven Christmases with her kids. She's not going to take a minute of future Christmases for granted. And one of her traditions is to return to prison. She delivers care packages to incarcerated women all over Texas. She sends them things like shampoo and deodorant. Some ladies have cried, she says. I mean real tears over a bottle of shampoo, and I understand, because when you haven't had those things in so long and you can't have them, to even be able to smell something that isn't disgusting and for just a few minutes when you're in the shower to feel like a human being, that's a huge thing. Hannah has a nonprofit now, Sindeo Ministries, which distributes these packages, helps incarcerated women establish Bible study groups, and helps people on the outside become pen pals with incarcerated women. Every week, Hannah writes about 50 letters to incarcerated women herself. She dreams of opening a transitional home for released women, a place where they can heal as they readjust to life on the outside. Sweet little Andrew, the boy who just wanted to be adopted, never got a happy ending. He was there, in the pantry, fighting for survival, maybe thinking that he'd never have anything to eat ever again, and he ate the wrong thing, and it killed him. Salt. The simplest ingredient we have. Who could have known? No, his story has a terrible ending. But Hannah's story has a happy ending, or as happy as a story like hers can be. Many other women don't get Hannah's ending. Like Hannah, most incarcerated women are mothers. 60% of women in prison and almost 80% of women in jail are mothers. Having a mother locked up is devastating for children. Since there aren't as many prisons for women as there are for men, Incarcerated women are often locked up far away from their kids, just like Hannah, whose kids had to travel over 600 miles round trip to see her once a month. And as far as the women who get exonerated, like Hannah, 40% of them were wrongfully convicted of harming children or other people under their care. Surely there are women right now, women without the resources and media spotlight that Hannah's case got, who sit in prison for a crime they never committed and long to see their children again. Hannah knows this. She's not blind to the fact that in the terrible universe of unlucky women who get accused of crimes they didn't commit, she's one of the lucky unlucky ones. That's why she works on Christmas Day, even though it's her favorite holiday with her beloved, precious, priceless children. She's on Instagram now, and her bio is a single Bible verse, Hebrews 13.3. Remember those in prison as if you were bound with them. And that's what Hannah does. 
She remembers them. And she remembers Andrew. The end. If any of you are as moved, and I mean moved, that is a word that encompasses about a thousand emotions right now, right? If any of you are as moved by Hannah's story as I was, I'm going to put the link to her nonprofit, Sindeo Ministries. I think I'm saying it right in the show notes. So you can go check it out. Obviously, you can donate. They have some little like greeting cards that you can buy. You can get involved. You can become a pen pal, you know, anything like that. So just check it out if your heart tells you that you should. All right. Thank you for listening. Thank you for getting through that rough episode with me. Don't worry. Next week's is also going to be really dark and deal with serious issues. But guys, as a true crime and history podcast, if you thought history was pleasant, then you probably only grew up reading Little Women and Anne of Green Gables, which I get. Those are some of my favorite books, too, as a child. But the rosy picture they paint of small towns where everyone gets along. Well, Little Women is actually darker than we maybe realize. But anyway, the rosy picture that Anne of Green Gable paints is obviously not representative of much of human history. Humans are, how should I put this, not very nice to each other a lot of the time. So meet me here next week if you can deal with more of it. It's going to be an entirely different tone than this episode, though, and there are going to be a lot more rich people behaving very, very badly, but I've said too much already. I'd like to thank this week's phenomenal patrons, the phenomenal foursome of Janine B., Maria L., Toyne K., and Bonnie S. Thank you all so much, everyone else. You know how to support the podcast. Leave a review. Become a patron at patreon.com slash criminalbroads. Use the promo codes I give you. Or just sing a little song. Sing along to the theme song. That's all you got to do. I'll see you here next week, everyone. And until then, I hope you're having a lovely summer. Talk soon. Bye. Maybe I'm right. Maybe I'm wrong. Loving you, dear, like I do. If it's a crime, then I'm guilty, guilty of loving you.